Christian, have you ever wondered to what degree you should adapt to the beliefs and the practices of the culture of those who do not know Christ, your family, your neighbors, your work colleagues, in order to reach them for the gospel? How far should you go? How, how much can you flex? What sets the limits? I want us to spend the next uh, few sermons in 1 Corinthians 9 through 10 considering this very important topic. To what degree should Christians adapt to the beliefs and practices of the culture of those who do not know Jesus in order to win them for the gospel? What do I mean by that? Well, suppose a Corinthian Christian is invited to a pagan temple for a birthday dinner party, a party where they will be offered meat that was sacrificed to an idol earlier that morning. Should the Christian go? What needs to be informing their decision? Or perhaps they're invited to someone's house for a private meal and the host serves food he bought in the marketplace. The host doesn't mention it, but the Christian knows it to be a fact. This meat was sacrificed to an idol. Does the Christian eat the food the host has provided or not? What needs to be informing their decision? Or suppose the Christian guest at this private meal has no scruples whatsoever about eating meat that's been sacrificed to an idol. And just as she gets ready to dig into a big juicy steak, someone sitting next to her leans over and says, don't eat it. It's been sacrificed. What does she do? What needs to be informing her decision? Let's take three modern-day scenarios now, beyond the, the Harry Potter list that we considered last week, uh, but keeping things in the spiritual religious realm, the realm of potential idolatry. And be it known, I won't be commenting further on these examples until next month, Lord willing, when I preach from, chapters, uh, from chapter 10, verses 23 to 33. Chapters 8 through 10 are one unit. It all hangs together. In the meantime, brothers and sisters, I want us to prayerfully, carefully consider. Example number one, a Roman Catholic relative, let's say your sister, to keep things interesting, invites you, a Protestant and a Baptist to boot, to her baby's baptism at the local Catholic church. Now, Wherein lies the dilemma for the Bible-believing Christian? It's in this. In the false, unbiblical Roman Catholic tradition, the sacrament of baptism washes away original sin. According to Rome, and these are all direct quotes from the official 1994 Catechism of the Catholic Church, quote, born with a fallen human nature and tainted by original sin, children also have need of new birth in baptism to be freed from the power of darkness and brought into the realm of the freedom of the children of God to which all men are called. By baptism, all sins are forgiven. Original sin and all personal sins, as well as our punishment for sin. Baptism not only purifies us from all sin, but also makes the neophyte a new creature, an adopted son of God, who has become a partaker of the divine nature, member of Christ and co-heir with him in a temple of the Holy Spirit. So, do we go to the baptism or not? How much can we flex? What sets the limits? What needs to be informing our decision? 
Example number two, we're a Chinese believer or we're married into a, we've married into a Chinese family. What do we do about Qingming, tomb sweeping day? Now, if your heritage isn't Chinese, you may be oblivious to tomb sweeping day, but you should know that each spring, one-fifth of the world's population observed this holiday. Qingming is a festival with roots in ancestor worship and traditional Chinese religion. The name literally means pure brightness because of its place in the solar calendar and the signaling of warmer temperatures. The holiday has evolved over the centuries into an amalgamation of various festivals and observances, pure brightness mixed with uh, an ancient food festival, mixed with memorials for deceased loved ones, and has resulted now in what's primarily a day to remember, pray for, and offer sacrifices to the dead. And so on tomb sweeping day, Chinese families travel to grave sites of deceased loved ones and they clean the tombstones. Observances often include praying for or to the departed, sharing a family meal near the grave, and burning paper effigies that represent afterlife necessities, such as houses, food, money. It's believed by many that the deceased need living family members to provide for them, even after they're gone, and effigies are the keys that provide these amenities uh, on the other side. Now, while some families don't make a big deal out of Qingming, for many, this is a serious matter. Participation is an expression of familial love and hospitality in a culture that's saturated with such values. It's an affirmation to the older generation that the younger will care for them after they're gone. It's a reminder that everyone in the family is still part of the group and still cherishes their ancestors. So for a good son or daughter to go off to university, become a Christian, and then return only to balk at the expected rituals, there can be serious consequences. Many Chinese believers find themselves in a difficult place. Some will keep peace and show love by going to the gravesite but not participating in the activities. Some will take a stronger stance against any attendance whatsoever at the pagan ritual. Some won't think twice and participate in everything. And some will participate either in part or in whole, but they will do so against their conscience. So the question is, how much can we flex? What sets the limits? What should be informing our decision? My third example is attending a gay wedding ceremony. Either the wedding of a friend or a family member, even our son, our daughter, be it a religious marriage ceremony or a secular marriage ceremony, how much can we flex? What sets the limits? What should be informing our decision? Regarding this whole topic in general, I think there are two incorrect but common approaches adopted by Christians. The first incorrect approach regarding the question of to what degree we should adapt the beliefs and practices of the culture of those who don't know Jesus in an effort to reach them with the gospel is to utterly capitulate. We enter into their life, their worldview, and we sin right alongside them, sinning either in the subjective sense or the objective sense. To sin in the uh, subjective sense means the activity is not forbidden by Scripture, but we believe it's wrong. 
Our conscience condemns us if we participate. Eating the meat, going to the baptism, going to the gravesite, going to the wedding. We feel terrible about it. And we have all sorts of doubts as we're doing it, which then makes it sin. Paul is very clear about that in Romans 14. But we do it anyway because we think it's for the best in the long run. Or it could be we sin right alongside those that we're trying to reach for the gospel. We sin in the objective sense. What we're doing is wrong. It's idolatry. But there isn't so much as a twinge of conscience. Why not? Because our conscience isn't biblically informed. We lack biblical truth that should be guiding and informing our decision. I'll be unpacking a bit later what Paul does and does not mean when he says, to the Jews I became like a Jew to win the Jews, to those under the law I became like one under the law so so as to win those under the law, to the weak I became weak to win the weak. I become all things to all people so that by all possible means I might save some. But please note, Paul did not write, to the adulterer I became like an adulterer. To the thief, I became like a thief. To the drunk, I became like a drunk. I have become all things to all people so that by all possible means I might save some. No, there are limits. And sometimes we need to calibrate our conscience by adding commands to it. Something's missing that ought to be there. Our conscience is malfunctioning because we've uh, absorbed the sinful worldview of this age. The second incorrect approach regarding the question of what degree we should adapt to the beliefs and practices of the culture of those who do not know Jesus in an effort to reach them with the gospel is to insist on our rights as a new covenant child of God or even our legal constitutional rights as Canadian citizens. And so we don't budge an inch. We don't flex for the gospel. We don't adapt one bit. We don't extend ourselves in the slightest. We have knowledge, but not love. We show no grace. But this can't be the Christian model because we see on a number of occasions in the book of Acts how Paul foregoes his legal rights for the sake of the gospel, doesn't he? Uh, He allows himself to be beaten and imprisoned without trial as a Roman citizen. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, doesn't Paul tell the church to forego their rights, to be cheated, in fact, rather than take a civil matter between two Christians in the church before the magistrate for adjudication? And in chapter 8, on the matter of eating meat in the temple that's been sacrificed to idols, Paul commands Christians be willing to give up their right to eat that meat in that locale for the sake of the gospel. Chapter 8, verse 13. Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother or sister to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause them to fall. Loving our brothers and sisters is more important than enjoying our biblical rights. Jesus, too, says we must be prepared to cede our legal rights. If someone sues us for our coat, we're to give them our shirt as well. If someone strikes us on one cheek, 
we're to turn to him the other. And in our text today, 1 Corinthians 9, we see that Paul willingly gives up his salary when getting paid for preaching the gospel is his biblical right. He quotes scripture, chapter and verse to this, uh, but he gives up that salary and instead he works a second job, all the better to uh, advance the gospel. Which begs the question, do we have rights to which we inflexibly cling, be they legal rights, be they biblical rights, as if they were more valuable than advancing the gospel? If we do, shame on us. 1 Corinthians 9.19 Though I am free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. What does that look like in your life, Christian? In real, practical terms. Look at your big picture in your bulletin handout. Within the realm of a rightly calibrated conscience, there is room for faithfulness and flexibility to adapt to the beliefs and practices of the culture of those who do not know Christ in order to reach them for Jesus. Christian liberty for Paul is not, I am free to do whatever I want. Rather, it is, I am free to flex for the sake of the gospel. And that is the essence of verses 19 to 23, the Mount Everest of our passage today. But to understand this paragraph correctly, we need to follow the flow of the argument uh, in chapters 8 and 9. Chapter 8 was last week's message. We covered a lot of ground. But let me draw our attention to just five verses by way of recap. Look at chapter 8, verse 9. Be careful, however, that the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone with a weak conscience sees you with all your knowledge eating in an idol's temple, won't that person be emboldened to eat what is sacrificed to idols? So this weak brother or sister for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. When you sin against them in this way and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother or sister to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause them to fall. And there we see the self-abnegation of a right out of love and concern for a brother or sister in Christ, correct? So look at problem number six in your bulletin. Some Corinthian Christians are eating food offered to idols in a way that stumble their weaker brothers and sisters in Christ. That's chapter eight or in chapter 10 in a way that is a fellowship with demons. What's the gospel solution? Do not make your brother or sister stumble because Christ died for them. Be willing to give up your rights for the sake of the gospel. Loving one's brothers and sisters is more important than enjoying one's rights. So that's the emphasis in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. In chapter 9, we see Paul's approach to his own rights. And we see that he indeed practices what he preaches. Paul 
generalizes now at this point. He starts talking about the rights that are actually his as an apostle of Jesus Christ in order to show how it's been a pattern of his life and his ministry not to insist on his rights, not to stand on his rights, but rather to cheerfully give up his rights for the gospel, which is the very thing he was calling on the Corinthians to do back in chapter 8. So that's the flow of the argument. Paul, he's an apostle. He is free to exercise his rights, but he voluntarily foregoes that liberty in order to build up his brothers and sisters. And so Paul asks four rhetorical questions, each one expecting a positive answer. Am I not free, he asks in verse 1? Yes, he is free. But free to do what? Well, he'll tell us that in a bit. Am I not an apostle? Yes. Have I not seen our Jesus our Lord? Yes. Are you not the result of my work in the Lord? Yes. So these are, these are the Apostle Paul's uh, bona fides, right? He's the real deal. He's seen. He's seen the resurrected Jesus along the Damascus Road, and he was commissioned by the resurrected Jesus as an apostle in that moment. And the Corinthian church itself is proof of his work for the Lord that he was indeed commissioned by Christ. Verse 2, even though I may not be an apostle to others, surely I am to you. Others may question whether Paul's an apostle, but the Corinthians certainly shouldn't. For you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. Seals in this culture were the guarantees, they were used to guarantee the quality or the authenticity of a document, such as a letter, or a product, such as wine. So Paul says the Corinthians themselves are his seal. The change that his preaching affected in their hearts shows that his apostleship is genuine. Paul has a God-empowered ministry out of a Christ-directed mandate from the resurrected king himself. So, granted, Paul is a bona fide apostle. Doesn't he have some rights? Yes, he certainly has rights. Verse 3, this is my defense to those who sit in judgment of me. And what's at issue here? The behavior that Paul's defending, the behavior that he's being judged for, is his insistence on not being paid to preach the gospel. The Corinthians are baffled by his decision to use a self-supporting approach to his church planting ministry because that's not how the sophists and the rhetoricians of the day went about it. Uh, Those wise, quote-unquote, teachers... Uh, with whom the Corinthians were so enamored. Verse 4, don't we have the right to food and drink? That is, don't we have the right as an apostle of Jesus Christ, whose primary vocation is proclaiming the gospel and establishing churches? Don't I have the right to have my expenses paid? Don't I have the right to receive material support from the churches? Verse 5, don't we have the right to take a believing wife along with us, as do other apostles and the Lord's brothers and Cephas? Which means, apparently, when the apostles traveled, they didn't go around as lone rangers, right? They brought their families with them. Isn't that wonderful to think about? What an excellent model that is. Verse 6, Or is it only I and Barnabas who lack the right to not work for a living? 
Now, Paul's relationships with his churches in this regard are actually quite complicated. Uh, Not to put it too simplistically, but by and large, Paul refused to take any money from the church he was presently serving, that he was presently planting. There are one or two exceptions, but that was basically his approach. In any place Paul was serving, where he was planting a church, where he was preaching Jesus, where he was calling men and women to Christ, Paul wanted to show what grace looked like. He didn't want to get paid for it, especially in an environment where people tended to pay gifted teachers a lot of money, places like Corinth. Paul didn't want to give the impression that he was being paid for services rendered. So what Paul would do is he would accept money from an earlier church he had planted, like the church back in Philippi. And then he wasn't being paid for services rendered in Corinth. He was being supported for the work of the ministry so he could plunge more fully into the local ministry without being distracted by his obligations as a leather worker. This was the model that Paul followed in Corinth, and the people of Corinth were scandalized. Starting in verse 7, Paul gives us some examples. Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and does not eat its grapes? Who tends a flock and does not drink the milk? A soldier deserves to get paid. A farmer deserves to eat the crop he has planted. A shepherd deserves to drink the milk from the flock that he tends. In the same way, Paul has the right to receive all of his financial support from the churches he serves even the fledgling church he is planting in that moment. But Paul doesn't do that. But he has the right. He has the right to that, but he forgoes the right. And Paul willingly puts up with anything this decision entails. Dishonor, hunger, thirst, ragged clothes, or the necessity of working with his own hands as a leather worker. So what's going on? Verse 8. Do I say this merely on human authority? Doesn't the law... Say the same thing, for it is written in the law of Moses, do not muzzle an ox while it is treading out the grain, Deuteronomy 25.4. Is it about oxen that God is concerned? Surely he says this for us, doesn't he? Yes, this was written for us, because whoever plows and threshes should be able to do so in the hope of sharing in the harvest. God wrote Deuteronomy 5.4 for the sake of gospel ministers like Paul, Because the one who plows and threshes should share in the harvest. It's only just. And Paul quotes this text again in 1 Timothy 5.17. The elders who direct the affairs of the church well are worthy of double honor, especially those whose work is preaching and teaching. For scripture says, do not muzzle an ox while it is treading out the grain, and the worker deserves his wages. Local churches should pay their pastor Well, that's what double honor means. It's just, they deserve it. Verse 11, if we have sown spiritual seed among you, is it too much if we reap a material harvest from you? If others have this right of support from you, shouldn't we have it all the more? And the Corinthians are saying, Paul, we wanted to pay you. We wanted to pay you big bucks just like rich Roman patrons pay their clients. 
Uh, just like the sophists get paid, just like the rhetoricians get paid. We wanted you to be looked upon as wise in the eyes of the Corinthian community, and we want to be considered wise by the world in choosing you as our rock star of a teacher. But Paul threw a monkey wrench into those gears. He chose instead not to exercise his rights because he doesn't want to get in the way of the gospel's advance. Paul would do anything to avoid that. Look at verse 13. Don't you know that those who serve in the temple get their food from the temple and that those who serve at the altar share in what is offered on the altar? Old Testament priests, they too, they had the right to eat portions of the offerings. In the same way, just like pastors, Paul has a right to earn his living solely from preaching the gospel. Jesus himself taught this, verse 14. In the same way, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should receive their living from the gospel. Matthew 10, 10, the worker is worth his keep. Luke 10, 7, the worker deserves his wages. Verse 15, but I have not used any of these rights. And I am not writing this in the hope that you will do such things for me. I'm sure we've all been on the receiving end of a, of a missionary email or a letter that's something like that. They describe their, their sacrifices and their hardships, but you can tell they've written the letter in the hope that their needs will be met and that you will be able to assist. Paul says, no, I'm not doing that. Make no mistake. For I would rather die than allow anyone to deprive me of this boast. That is, his boast that he voluntarily does not use his right to be paid. And Paul uses this word boast not in its usual sense of pride that steals glory from God, but rather as expressing a rightful sense of joy and fulfillment in what God has done through him. Paul was proud that he preached the gospel without receiving financial support from the Corinthian patrons a rightful sense of joy and fulfillment in what God is doing through him in that. I would rather die than allow anyone to deprive me of this boast. We might think, whoa, is that, <laughs> is that a slip of the pen? I mean, is he, is he using hyperbole there? Why is this boast so important to Paul? I'm going to read a chunk from the New Living Translation. Don't follow along in your Bibles, your NIVs, if that's what you have. Just listen to this. This is what Paul says, starting in verse 16. Preaching the good news is not something I can boast about. I am compelled by God to do it. How terrible for me if I didn't preach the good news. If I were doing this on my own initiative, I would deserve payment. But I have no choice. For God has given me this sacred trust. What then is my pay? It is the opportunity to preach the good news without charging anyone. That's why I never demand my rights when I preach the good news. Isn't that astounding? That's amazing. Merely preaching the gospel doesn't give Paul a ground for boasting because preaching the gospel is what Jesus commissioned 
Paul to do on the road to Damascus. It's his duty. He didn't volunteer for it. God appointed him to it. He can do nothing else. He has no choice. Preaching the gospel is what God has tasked Paul with. So then, if that's the situation, how does Paul demonstrate that nevertheless, despite this degree of compulsion... He's in it all the way, that he he wants to do this. He loves to do this. He preaches the gospel free of charge. That's his ground for boasting. That's Paul's reward. And he says, I would rather die than allow anyone to deprive me of this boast. Now we come to the Mount Everest of the passage, verses 19 to 23. But before we ascend its heights, let me just say one thing. Have you ever heard of a life verse? Well, I googled, what is a life verse this week? And this is what Google told me. A life verse is a verse from the Bible that speaks to you in a special way. It seems as if it were put in God's word just for you. There is usually a reason why it so resonates with your soul and spirit, and you probably have a story connected with it. Well, I'm not sure I agree with any of that. But, Christian, if you insist, if you insist on having a life verse, might I suggest verse 19 of our text today, as opposed to the massively misunderstood, decontextualized, and misapplied Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Never was there a verse more sinned against than Philippians (laughs) 4.13. So here's our new life verse, Christian, if we go that way. See how it fits. How do you like this? Though I am free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. Christian, what is one significant area in your own life where you are deliberately, where you are intentionally living out the spirit of that verse, where you're doing likewise, where you're imitating Paul. I'll ask again, do you have rights to which you inflexibly cling as if they were more valuable than advancing the gospel? See, verse 19 is what Christian liberty really is. The freedom to discipline yourself, to be flexible for the sake of the gospel. Brothers and sisters, hear me. Christian liberty isn't saying, cool, I I finally get to do what I always wanted to do, but my strict upbringing wouldn't let me do it. And then we post it on our Facebook wall. Or we tweet it so everyone knows that we're hip. That's not Christian liberty. That's immaturity. That's just puerile. Christian liberty is the domain of the mature, not the immature. When the immature get a hold of liberty, they make a mess of it. Like some of the Corinthians did. Verse 19. Though I am free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. 
Only a free person can make themselves a slave. Verse 20, to the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. On the one hand, Paul states that to evangelize Jews, he has to become like a Jew. More precisely, to those under the law of Moses, I've become like one under the law of Moses, though I myself am not under the law of Moses, so as to win those under the law of Moses. As far as DNA is concerned, Paul is a Jew. He's a direct descendant of Abraham. And at one time, he was under the law covenant of Moses, but at this point in his life, he is not. Why not? It's as we celebrated this morning. Jesus has inaugurated a new covenant in his blood. Salvation history has moved on. Paul's a Christian. But Paul, when Paul sets himself the task of winning his fellow Jews for Jesus Christ, he wants to remove any unnecessary offense. So he adopts the disciplines of kosher Jews. So in that sense, he becomes like a Jew, like one under the law. Paul bends, he flexes. On the other hand, when Paul sets himself the task of evangelizing Gentiles, he becomes like those not having the law. Look at verse 21. To those not having the law... I became like one not having the law. Skip the parenthetical remark. So as to win those not having the law. Now, Paul recognizes that his stance in verse 21 could be understood as simple lawlessness, total antinomianism, adultery, theft, the drunkard I became like a drunkard. So he adds that parenthetical remark, clarifying his stance, doesn't mean he's completely lawless and, and free from all divine command. Far from it, he writes, Though I am not free from God's law, but am under Christ's law. Verse 22. To the weak, I became weak. To win the weak. And I think that the weak in this verse refers to unbelievers with a weak conscience in a particular area, not believers. Uh, for example, those unbelievers who are theologically incorrect in their opinions on eating food offered to idols. Just, just listen again. We're going to read from the NLT one more time. This is chapter 10, verse 27. Just listen to this. If someone who isn't a believer asks you home for dinner, accept the invitation if you want to. Eat whatever is offered you without raising questions of conscience. But suppose someone tells you, this meat was offered to an idol. Don't eat it out of consideration for the conscience of the one who told you. It might not be a matter of conscience for you, but it is for the other person. Isn't the NLT great? I mean, that is, what an easy to understand, faithful translation that is. Uh, now, in our day, this might be someone who says, Oh, I know you can't have a glass of wine. You're a Christian. You're not allowed to drink. So here's an iced tea. And unless we have the time or even the inclination to explain the biblical position regarding alcoholic beverages right there in that moment, and that position being, it's fine to drink, but we must not get drunk, then we just say, thanks so much. I love iced tea. And, and, and honestly, that's when we know some Christian maturity is taking root in our lives. When we become weak for the weak, to win the weak. When we flex, when we bend for the weak. 
Verse 22b, I have become all things to all people so that by all possible means I might save some. I do all this for the sake of the gospel that I may share in its blessings. And so Paul, he is a model missionary because he strategically accommodates people in various cultural contexts in order to evangelize them more fruitfully. Again, Christian liberty for Paul is not, I'm free to do whatever I want to do. Rather, it's I'm free to flex for the sake of the gospel. All right, that's the text itself for today. And Lord willing, we'll continue on with the rest of the chapter and into chapter 10 in 2022. But I'd like to wrap things up over the next 10 or 15 minutes or so by looking at a number of topics related to conscience. Things that can help flesh this teaching out and better help us kind of better put it into practice. First off, Christian, know this. Over the course of your life, your conscience will change. In fact, it should change. It must change. Your conscience is your consciousness of what you believe is right and wrong at any given point in time, but it can change for a whole host of reasons. You may think something is wrong at one point in your life, but think it's right or morally neutral later on. Uh, So, for example, when the Lord saved me, I believed that it was sin to drink alcohol. A few years later, I changed my mind. My conscience in that area grew to have more liberty. Or we may believe something is right at one point in our life or morally neutral, but believe it's wrong later. So, as a new believer, there were certain movies I felt were fine to watch. Later on, my conscience changed. I became stricter. But why is that? What are some reasons our conscience may change? Let me give three reasons. The first two are bad reasons why our conscience may change. And the third is a good reason. So number one, our conscience might become more hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Some people think as the years go by and they're Christians that their mind is broadening. But in reality, they're just feeding their conscience excuses. And feeding excuses to your conscience is like feeding sleeping pills to a watchdog. Second, our conscience might follow the standards of other people, such as our culture, our family, our spiritual leaders. And so we simply go with the flow without thinking through the issues, without thinking through Scripture. Or, here's a good reason, because those first two were bad. Here's a good reason. Our conscience might conform more to truth, especially the truth of God's Word. Christian, because God is the Lord of your conscience, He expects you, as an ever-maturing believer, to gradually adjust to gradually calibrate your conscience to match God's will as it's revealed in the Bible. If you step on a bathroom scale, and that scale reads 155 pounds, but you actually weigh 150 pounds, then that scale is off by 5 pounds, right? 
You need to calibrate the scale so that it functions accurately. In the same way, we need to calibrate our conscience to align it more closely with the standard of God's word. Now, listen carefully. This is so important to train and educate our conscience to properly calibrate it is not to sin against our conscience, but to put it under the lordship of Jesus Christ. To train our conscience to more nearly match God's revealed truth is a great, great blessing. So here's the $64,000 question. How can we know the difference between sinning against our conscience and calibrating our conscience? Since in both cases, we're telling our conscience to be quiet. Here are two ways. Number one, you are sinning against your conscience when you believe your conscience is speaking correctly and yet you refuse to listen to it. And the emphasis here is on you believe. Christian, you must obey your conscience if you believe it's functioning accurately. It may not be functioning accurately, but if you think it is, then you must follow it. A la Romans 14, it's not wrong to drink wine. It's not sinful. But if you believe it is, then you're sinning if you indulge. As Mark Dever puts it, conscience cannot make a wrong thing right, but it can make a right thing wrong. Subjectively for you. Second, you are calibrating your conscience. You're not sinning against it. When Jesus, the Lord of your conscience, teaches you through his word that your conscience has been incorrectly warning you about a particular matter. And so you decide to no longer listen to your conscience in that one area. Now, in the early stages of calibration... Deciding not to listen to your conscience may feel like you're sinning against it. When you read your first Harry Potter novel, after becoming completely convinced that reading Harry Potter novels is morally neutral, your conscience may warn you. But ignoring that warning is not searing your conscience, but calibrating it under the lordship of Jesus Christ. Do you know, does the Bible include any examples of someone calibrating their conscience. Yes, that's exactly what Peter had to do in Acts chapter 10. God gave Peter a vision of certain kinds of animals that old covenant Jews were forbidden to eat. But in the vision, the Lord Jesus said, kill and eat. And Peter's weak conscience revolted against this command. His faith wouldn't allow him to do that. By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. Clearly, Peter's faith in Jesus isn't weak. He was an apostle. He believed, he understood the gospel. Thousands have been converted under his preaching, and he even suffered for the gospel. Yet, when it comes to eating unclean animals and fellowshipping with Gentiles, Peter's faith was still very weak indeed, in the sense that he lacked confidence to do those things. But because Jesus himself was commanding him, he had to calibrate his conscience that he would have the faith, the confidence to accept food and people that he previously thought were unacceptable. So then, how do we calibrate our conscience? Again, just two basic principles. 
We calibrate our conscience by educating it with truth. As, as best you can, Christian, try to discern why you hold certain convictions. Is it based on truth? Especially the truth God has revealed in Holy Scripture. Here's how John MacArthur puts it in his book, The Vanishing Conscience. The conscience reacts to the convictions of the mind and therefore can be encouraged and sharpened in accordance with God's word. The wise Christian wants to master biblical truth so that the conscience is completely informed and judges right because it's responding to God's word. A regular diet of scripture will strengthen a weak conscience and restrain an overactive one. Conversely, error, human wisdom, and wrong moral influences filling the mind will corrupt or cripple the conscience. In other words, the conscience functions like a skylight, not a light bulb. It lets light into the soul. It does not produce its own. Its effectiveness is determined by the amount of pure light that we expose it to and by how clean we keep it. Cover it or put it into total darkness, and it ceases to function. And we must all do this careful process of calibration in the context of biblical and theological training in the local church. A a, a theologically uninformed believer runs the risk of jettisoning from their conscience laws that Scripture clearly teaches. D.A. Carson explains this. This is, this is very wise. Although Paul was an extraordinarily flexible apostle and evangelist, he had sorted through elemental Christianity in a profound and nuanced way so that he knew when he could be flexible and when he should not bend. In other words, his grasp of theology enabled him to know who he was, what was expected of him, what he was free to do, and what he should not consider doing under any circumstances. We also must know what freedoms and constraints are ours in Jesus Christ. And the only way to achieve this maturity is to think through Scripture again and again to try and grasp the system of its thought, how the parts cohere and combine to make sense. Calibrate your conscience by educating it with biblical truth. Second, calibrate your conscience with due process. This is a wisdom issue. Sometimes it will take time, time to work through a particular matter. The example of Peter in Acts chapter 10 is unusual because God directly commanded him to do something that his conscience previously prohibited him from doing. As a mature Christian, Peter was able to calibrate his conscience on the fly. But sometimes, just to be honest, it can take years to calibrate our conscience on a particular issue. And this education isn't something we do in a vacuum. We don't do it all alone. We are members of New City Baptist Church. God has put us into a community and given us various relationships and accountability. Christian, I'm going to ask, are you working perhaps? Are you working through something in your life right now? Godly pastors, godly, wise church members can help you discern the difference between issues of right and wrong 
and issues of preference or scruple. And finally, how might we go about calibrating our conscience? There are two ways, by adding to it or subtracting from it. Sometimes we need to calibrate our conscience by adding commands to it. Something is missing that ought to be there. Our conscience is malfunctioning because we've deeply absorbed a sinful worldview. For instance, many people live together with their boyfriend or girlfriend with a clear conscience. They look at pornography with a clear conscience. Many men and women abort their babies with a clear conscience. Many people gossip with a clear conscience. Many people tell all sorts of lies with a clear conscience. Many people get drunk with a clear conscience. What needs to change? They need to calibrate their conscience by educating it with biblical truth. Sexual immorality is a sin against God and others. Abortion is murder. Gossip is sin. Lying is sin. Getting drunk is a sin. Just because you can sin with a clear conscience doesn't mean that what you're doing is okay. This, okay, just be, I want to be very clear. This teaching does not open up the floodgates to moral relativism. My conscience is fine with this or that sinful behavior, so that makes it okay. I can indulge. God, God forbid. If a police officer pulls you over for doing 100 in a school zone, do you, do you think he'll let you off if you appeal? But officer, my speedometer indicated I was only doing 40. No, he'll say, that's your problem, buddy. Calibrate your speedometer. And when it comes to sin, you are responsible to calibrate your conscience, Christian. When might we calibrate our conscience by subtracting unnecessary rules from it? How about this? I'll throw this out to a, maybe a large proportion of this church. Is it sinful to celebrate Halloween? Some Christian friends of mine, brothers and sisters with good intentions, have told me that Halloween is associated with the occult. And so anything associated with Halloween is satanic. Now, I would first challenge you humbly on your knowledge of the history of All Hallows' Eve. Your historical reconstruction is incorrect. And if your understanding of the history is off, your conviction will be off too. The fact is, nearly all the festivities and celebrations which are collectively thought of as Halloween practices are less than a century old. And their current widespread popularity and cultural force is really only about 50 years old. And if you're looking for a really good article about the history of All Hallows' Eve, I can email you an excellent one. Just ask me for it. But choosing not to celebrate Halloween because of its associations is a viable option. Christians may abstain. Obey your conscience. Never violate your conscience. But Jill and I have decided that it's not the most strategic approach. I believe this is a case of subtracting unnecessary rules. In our experience, none of our neighbors who celebrate Halloween think of it as a satanic holiday. We have a steady flow of three-year-olds coming to our door dressed up like Spider-Man, 
Little Bo Peep, and Elsa. Satan and the occult is the last thing on their minds. Jill and I would let our children go door to door in our neighborhood to get candy. And we do give away candy at our front door. And we give away good candy, not the cheap stuff. All right? Shock and awe. It's, it's deliberate on our part. It's a lot of fun too, right? But more important, we think it's a strategic cultural tradition. What other day of the year are all our neighbors expecting us to knock on their doors? It's a time to make and renew personal connections with neighbors for the sake of the gospel. In a culture where our front doors are often, they often function like a castle gate, we think it's good to jump at the opportunity to interact face-to-face with our neighbors in a friendly, non-confrontational way. We're thankful for Halloween. In conclusion, I'll say this. Beloved, in these days, more than ever, it's so important to calibrate our conscience correctly regarding disputable third-level matters so that we are free to flex and bend for the sake of the gospel. We cannot flex on disputable matters if our conscience wrongly condemns us about it. Although it may be simpler to prohibit a disputable matter as inherently sinful and therefore off-limits, it's not a Christian virtue to determine that genuine biblical rights are not genuine biblical rights. Therefore, we must calibrate our conscience when it's theologically incorrect. We must add to it. We must subtract from it so that we can, we can strategically accommodate others for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Though I am free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. Amen.